This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 170, How Far? A Tale of Determination, DNA, and Drama, with our guest, Bob Wilbur. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is your host, Greg Gazin. Our guest today is Bob Wilbur, and he's been writing creatively since grade school and was first published at the ripe age of 16 in the St. Louis Sports Magazine. He is a son of a former Major League Baseball player and a mother who passed along her communications and public relations skills to her youngest son. After earning a full athletic scholarship to Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, he spent six years in professional baseball as a player, coach, and for the Canadian baseball team, the Toronto Blue Jays. Bob then moved on to international sports marketing and eventually spent 22 years in the world of NHRA, the National Hot Rod Association, as a PR representative and the team manager for funny car drivers Del Worsham and Tim Wilkerson. In 2017, he published his autobiography, Bats, Balls, and Burnouts. Bob continues to write his long-standing and popular blog. He stretched his writing muscles into an entirely new genre of historical fiction. It's called How Far? A Tale of Determination, DNA, and Drama. Bob lives in Minnesota with his wife, Barbara, and their cats, Bufus and Buster, who are listening as we speak. Bob Wilbur, welcome to Toastcaster. Hey, it's great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I love all that alliteration, Bob. What's with all the bees? <laughs> well, I, I can't <laughs> explain that. I have alliteration in the title of the of the book, too, of the determination, drama, and DNA, and all that stuff. I must be hung up on that. Now, Bob, this podcast, we primarily focus on communication and leadership and things that we can do to improve our personal and professional lives. And we have interviewed a number of authors, but we've never interviewed anyone that has written historical fiction. When your book came onto my radar... I read about you, I read about the backstory, and I thought, this is definitely a book I'd like to read. I had some thoughts on how perhaps it would fit in with the podcast, and I was thinking, where can we go with this? Once I started reading the book, OMG, there are so many examples here of creativity, leadership, and real-life lessons that I just couldn't wait until I read the entire book, 566 pages, before I had you on the program. So, Bob, just to start us off, tell us a little bit about your new book and why did you write it? Well, uh, my autobiography was successful beyond my wildest ex- expectations. I thought, you know, my, my wife and a couple of my siblings will buy it and that'll be it. It sold very, very well. Uh, I did a Kickstarter campaign to have the funding to do it because I retired in order to become an author. And that went over the moon well. That just gave me the confidence to step outside any comfort zone I might have ever had. And after 22 years in drag racing as a PR guy, couldn't tell you how many thousands of press releases and race updates and race reviews and proposals and all sorts of other things like that that I had written but I considered that kind of industrial writing. It, it has to fit a format. It has to be, you know, who, what, where, when, and how. And um, I got as creative as I could in that role. And it, it made a name for me because I stretched the bounds of what press releases were supposed to be <laughs> to make them engaging and tell stories. So, you know, forever people were telling me, man, you got so many great stories. Your life has been so crazy. Um, you ought to write a book. And so I did. I wrote my first book, Bats, Balls, and Burnouts. And then I thought, well, that worked. So what can I do next? 
and I bounced a couple of ideas off myself because I, I don't really consult with people on this. And I figured if I had an idea right before going to bed and I woke up and thought that was dumb, then that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It took me about a year to come up with the concept. And and I was busy promoting the first book for that first year. You know, it's like it's like a band doing an album, going on tour. And while they're on tour, they're already writing the next album. So um, that's kind of how I was. But I had some interest in the historical fiction thing. I'd read a couple books years ago that were interesting in that regard. And one of them, entitled War Day, it was written by Whitley Strieber and James Kunetka. They co-wrote it. Uh, Whitley Strieber was pretty famous as an author. He wrote a book called Communion that was a bestseller. I, I remember being maybe 30 years old and everybody I knew was reading it and passing it around. To this day, he insists it was a very true story about he and his family being abducted by aliens. <laughs> you know, with War Day, gobbled it up, and I loved the format. It was two fictional characters. They each wrote as one of them. They alternated chapters. They left a demolished New York City after a one-day World War III, which was all nuclear, in an effort to go somehow traverse America to see what was left. And it was a dark book, but it was fascinating. And I love that concept of two characters alternating chapters in their own voices. I mean, literally sat up in bed one day and said, I've got it. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to write this book that's going to be real life events. Obviously, War Day wasn't. Fortunately, we've not had World War III. I'm going to write about real events, real places, real other people. But I'm going to place these two fictional characters in the middle of it and let them tell the story. So that's what I did. It's written in their voices. I've got a, a, an undersized hockey player from a little town called Roseau, Minnesota. Roseau is nine miles south of the Canadian border. It's 2,600 people. They've sent about a dozen players to the NHL and many dozens more to top-level college or international hockey. And I just remember, when you live in Minnesota, you know about Roseau. It's crazy. Like, how do they do that? What's in the water up there? So I said, there, there's, there's my first character. He's a hockey player from Roseau. And then I played professional baseball and knew a lot of guys from Southern California because that area just creates them, right? They can play all year round. And um, and I've known a few who were kind of hippie surfer dudes who were great baseball players. So that was my other guy. I'm, I'm going to have a, a surfer dude pitcher who's blessed. He's he's just got a golden arm. So I like that juxtaposition of the two characters, one having to overachieve and the other having to get what he probably should earn because he's gifted, but nothing's going to go easy for either one of them. So I wrote it in the first person in their voices. And that was a challenge to not be caricature-ish. Southern California guys really do talk like that. They really do say stoked and rad. And that's totally gnarly. I mean, that, sure. they do, they do talk that way. <laughs> and then you have to try to not make the Minnesota kid sound like he's in the movie Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's an easy trap to fall into. It's a totally different mindset there. It's a very stoic Scandinavian part of the country. And write it as them. And it was a joy to write. It took me a year and a half, but it was an absolute joy to write. I told my wife after maybe five chapters that I don't even think, I threw my outline away. I mean, I had it in my head what I wanted them to do. Every time I kept thinking, I'm going to make them go do this now, the voice in my head would say, no, we wouldn't do that. We would do this. So I kind of told my wife, hey, I think I'm transcribing this and these two guys are writing it. The reaction to that format and that version of how, how you get two characters into a book and make the reader think it's really them, that's what I'm most proud of. And that's where most of my great reviews have come from, that it's extremely creative. The dialogue is spot on and it, it's got a wonderful flow to it. So 
people seem to care about the two characters and that's awesome because they're fictional. Definitely an untraditional structure and the the aspect of a f- historical fiction. I know myself what I did is in all fairness I'm not quite a third into the book. I started googling some of the places, some of the things that you had said and it's amazing that it's it's spot on and the book reads like it's an autobiography or a biography. Yes, correct. It would be a, a twin autobiography, yeah. <laughs> It was kind of cool. I even remember reading about the U.S. Olympic team that you talked about. Of course, I can mention this stuff without giving anything away. Yeah. And I didn't realize about the filming when they were filming the two different rinks that they were using and it right. different color ice. I didn't even know all that information. I thought that's yeah. actually kind of cool. That was the 1980 U.S. Olympics where I guess the U.S. team was the were the underdogs, right? Oh, they're the youngest team in the tournament and made up of college players. They won. I'm not giving away anything here. I think people know this. They won the gold medal. So, you know, I did a lot of research starting from the very beginning. One of the first things I did was go to Roseau. See, I, I didn't know how far away it was. I didn't know how exactly <laughs> tall Minnesota is. Being from where you are, it's it's compact compared to Alberta. But um, still, I, I, I went up there and I didn't know what to do. I just wanted to be in the town. I wanted to soak it all in, sit in the diners and walk the streets. But I thought, a town this small, it's always about 2,600 people, by the way, because the original headquarters and still the main factory for Polaris is in Roseau. That's so if you've ever ridden a snowmobile, it, it very well might be from Roseau, Minnesota. But I thought a town that small, if I show up in my Lexus and start hanging out in the diners, word's going to shoot around town in about five minutes that some weird stranger is here. <laughs> So I picked up the phone and just called the school. And when I say the school, I mean it exactly singular. There's one school in Roseau, and it's kindergarten through 12th grade. The second graders and the seniors in high school are all in the same place. And I got the superintendent of schools on the phone and told him what I was doing. And he got so excited about Roseau being in this book that uh, we arranged for me to get up there. Uh, And over the course of three days, he had five interviews a day set up for me. Um, everybody from the guy who installs the ice at their classic old arena to the mayor <laughs> and, uh, everybody in between uh, and a lot of former players from there return home, even though it's, you know, like where you are in Edmonton, it's a, it's, it's a brutally cold place to live, but they love their town and they, they end up staying there. And so I got to do that. I went back a second time and, and just soaked it all in. So I felt like, okay, now I know this place. I'm not reading about Roseau and then trying to write about it. I really know this. I got really lucky in that the three Broughton brothers, hockey players, are from Roseau. Neil Broughton was on that Olympic team. His brother Aaron played in the NHL for five or six years. And their youngest brother, Paul, played in the NHL. I discovered that Paul lives in the same suburb of the Twin Cities here in Minnesota that I do. And they gave me his email address and I talked to him. And he became kind of my technical advisor on all things Roseau and all things hockey from high school to college to juniors to the NHL. Anytime I needed, hey, what was it really like to do this? He called me back in five minutes and we talked for 45, you know, and, and he was just wonderful. And that gave me so much flavor. Now, I'd been to Southern California a lot. One of my funny car drivers, Del Worsham, that I represented for 12 years is from Orange County in California. And it was a surfer. He was also a BMX bicycle racer before he became a funny car driver. So he was kind of the epitome of that kind of guy. And uh, he helped me a lot through osmosis, but I thought, you know, I've got to get back out there. So I flew out to L.A. and and spent two or three days driving the roads of these towns where I wanted my character, the baseball player, to be from. And I literally, it would be a deal where I'd 
be driving down a street in Huntington Beach and think, that's it. That's, that's the house. That's the house he grew up in before they moved to San Clemente. I found a high school in Anaheim, and I said, well, this is it. This is where he pitched. He was a high school pitcher at this high school. All of that, to me, is very real, and when it is that real, it's a lot easier to write because you're not making it up. You're just letting it soak into your brain and bring these characters to life. That's, I think, what I'm most proud of is that it really, a number of people have reviewed it and said, kind of what you just said, by halfway through the book, I was wanting to Google their stats because I thought they were real people. I forgot that an author wrote this. So I think that's the ultimate compliment. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask you, it almost seemed that some of the intimate details, and I was going to mention Neil Broughton, some of the intimate details that you that you spoke about, again, given the fact that it's historical fiction, true to place and time and, and people, except for the characters, that you had those details down pat. It, it wasn't like, yeah, well, that doesn't sound kind of right, or ah, that's kind of you know convoluted. Everything felt very, very real. And it it seemed that you took a risk on writing the book. You were very resourceful in, in terms of finding ways to to get the information that you needed. And I think I think those are really, really great life lessons. I'm wondering, Bob, the book is 566 pages. I'm not dwelling on it, but I'm just saying it's just it's it's incredibly long. But yet, like I said, third of the way in, I'm still fairly engaged. Did you know how long the book was going to be when you first started? Did you actually have an end of the story in mind when you first started? Um, the answer is I kind of know, but <laughs> okay. kind of yes. No, I didn't really know how long it would be. I knew though, here's my passion for writing. Details, details, details. I tell people who, if I mentor them at all, my style editor mentored me a lot. And a couple of times I, I said something like, it was a beautiful day. And we worked on Google Docs together so that he could edit my stuff and I could watch him do it which was kind of voyeuristic to watch somebody actually go into your document and change words. But <laughs> I remember him putting a comment in, in the margin saying, what's a beautiful day? I don't know what that is. And I stopped and said, boy, he is absolutely right. And that was early on in the book. And I thought, I'm never going to make this mistake again. I'm going to tell you what the clouds looked like, what the temperature was, were the leaves falling or were they just blooming? How's the grass? Uh, I want you to not have to picture it yourself. I want to let you know what it was like. And so I took that lesson through all of it, whether it was things like what the day was like versus what the locker room is like, what, what the games are like, what it feels like to have great success and what it feels like to have bad injuries and, and letdowns and challenges. I just knew that it was going to be not a sports book. It was going to be through a sports lens and it was going to focus on two athletes, but it was going to be a life book. That is another thing I'm most proud of is that I've gotten a lot of reviews secret ones sent to me by reviewers who gave it a rave, but said, I got to applaud you. I don't care about baseball or hockey and don't know much about either one of them, but I loved your book. And a lot of them were female. Women seem to like it as much as the guys, even though you know, it can get a little stat heavy with the two sports. But um, the whole thing is, is a real a, a tale of life, what it can be and how two guys who couldn't be more different become the closest friends. That was a joy to write. Was it that aspect that they found fascinating? You said they, they didn't care for the baseball or the hockey, but yeah, the, the story. And the characters. And it's funny because I, don't, I haven't heard from anybody who's read it who didn't pick a favorite of the two. I won't divulge that. But it's, <laughs> it's about 75-25 to one particular guy in the book. But everybody says they loved them both and, and believed them both. Some of the reviews I've gotten from major, major critics around the country have been beyond anything I could have hoped for. 
you're taking a huge risk. You're throwing your reputation on the line, really. I mean, it's not quite, but I guess a little bit like, you know, kind of standing naked in front of a crowd. You don't know. You're up there and you've put yourself on display and you've said, read my book. I hope you like it. You don't know when when critics are reviewing it. You have no idea. Uh, You don't know if they're going to pan it and say it's the most amateurish thing they've ever read and they couldn't get 40 pages into it before throwing it in the fireplace. You just don't know. So when it does come back to you that people like it, dare I say some of them love it, that is why you do it. So there's a life lesson of risk and there's also a life lesson that everything is in the details, 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 details. However, you can only have so many details, but I was thinking probably you going to Roseau or going to SoCal, Southern California, probably helped you in terms of creating that imagery in your mind when you were there. Oh, absolutely. Especially like Southern California. Um, you know, I literally did, like I said, I found a, all the schools, grade school, middle school, high school that my character went to. So I was picturing that. I knew the area. I knew the house he lived in. I knew exactly how far he had to walk to get to the beach. So I wasn't making any of that stuff up. Um, the research was passionate. When people ask me how much research I did, I would say I did as much research as I did writing. And that was from day one till the book was published. Uh, there was always research to do. And that's how I would break up my days. I would do research in the morning on wherever we were in the story to make sure I had it right. Take a break for lunch and write in the afternoon. That was my typical day with this book. So how much of you, I guess even you know personally, is in the book? Of course, there has to be quite a bit, especially on the baseball side, but not the character. That's characters I knew, guys I knew. I mean, I was from St. Louis. Um, <laughs> I, I was not from Southern California, and I didn't want it to be me. I wanted it to be something that I had to stretch to write, but got kind of hooked on this idea of him being from Southern California and his parents were hippies and he was a surfer dude. I mean, that just seemed right to me. When you're talking about the game itself... Now, I played professionally, and I scouted for the Blue Jays for parts of five years. So I knew what to look for. I knew what had to be done. I knew what it was like. It helped that in my minor league career, I was mostly an outfielder. But at the very end of my minor league career, I was playing in the Northwest League in Medford, Oregon for the Medford A's, a farm club of the Oakland A's. And our bullpen was just terrible. And we were getting bombed every night. And it was getting to the point where we didn't even have anybody capable of going out there to throw. And our manager came up to me one night in our locker room in the clubhouse and said, have you ever pitched? And I shuffled through my mental Rolodex and thought, well, I'm not going to tell him this, but I think fourth grade counts. So I said, (laughs) oh yeah, Skip, absolutely. You just put me right out there. So I pitched for the last month of the season and actually did really well. So I knew that feeling. I knew the feeling of your mechanics and your delivery and the way the ball feels coming out of your hand and how you pitch. You know, when, do you pitch backwards, starting with the off-speed stuff and then bring in the fastball, or do you brush them back with a fastball and then and then go with the off-speed stuff? There's all that stuff is is in my head. The hockey technicalities were more difficult because I never played the game, but between Paul Broughton and uh, and a lot of other people, I I had a lot of assistance there to really flesh it out and spent hours with a couple of guys playing minor league hockey and with my recorder going, just saying, tell me about this. Tell me about that. You're, you're a defenseman. What, what are you doing? What's in your mind every second you're on the ice? I had an advantage with the baseball guy, but he's not me. Obviously you had some authoritative sources to work with, which is, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. You come across as being a lifelong learner. You had mentioned that you had learned things even from your editor in this writing process. Bob, I'm actually curious what is something, even though you've got decades of experience and, and a very a wide range of experiences, 
What did you learn about yourself during this entire process? A lot of belief. Uh, I was so fortunate the way I grew up. I always say you can't pick your parents. And in in that regard, I, I won the lottery. My mother and father were just so unique and so successful. And they didn't push us. We just, at least I did. I'm the youngest of five. I know most of my siblings and certainly me, I, I just kind of absorbed it by osmosis as to what they were doing and what they had done. And still, as the youngest, the punk in the family, you're never sure if you really are worthy of anything you're doing. And that follows you a long way. I mean, I played professional baseball and still every day thought, why are they paying me to do this? <laughs> do I really deserve to be here? All that stuff. I think my time in drag racing, where I became sort of famous because of the work I did. That's when I started my blog, when I was the team manager for Dell Worsham. That was a giant challenge because the editor of National Dragster Magazine and NHRA.com reached out to a bunch of us PR reps and said, hey, there's these new things. They're called blogs. And we think it'd be great to have that on our website. So we want all of you to get with your drivers and either ghostwrite it for them or edit it heavily so that it's readable. And we'll do it for a whole month. My first thought was, this was 2005. My first thought was, a month? Who could possibly write one of these things for a month? (laughs) Then I told him, hey, look, man, my driver lives in Southern California. I live in Minnesota. Maybe I'm crazy, but I don't think these blogs should be about what happens at the racetrack. The readers have all seen that already on TV. They know what happened at the racetrack. It should be about your life. It should be about what you're doing, your kids, where you and your wife went on vacation, stuff like that. And I said, I can't do that. I'm 1,800 miles away and he's busy as heck. So I don't think I can do this. The editor said to me, okay, here you go. Let's see if a guy no one's ever heard of can write about stuff they don't care about and still entertain them. And I immediately said, you got it. I'm writing this as me. My wife thought I was nuts. (laughs) She (laughs) literally said the words, who wants to hear what you did today? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no clue. I don't know if this is going to be really, really embarrassing. Uh, and a failure, or if it's going to work. Within two years, it was the number one blog on the site. And at the end, when I retired in 2015, at the end of 2015, the day I quit, they just took the whole blog page down because I was 95% of their hits. That gave me, we're back to that point of belief, that gave me some belief that I did something that most people thought would be a complete disaster and turned it into something that made me known. And then, you know, writing the first book, but this one was a, the, the next giant leap. And you were absolutely right when you said I'm a continual learner. I just relish the idea of trying something so different, so outside my comfort zone, that, again, it was going to be a sink or swim moment. And so many things in my life have been sink or swim moments, whether it's school, getting a scholarship, playing baseball, playing professional baseball, where it's a whole new level after college, all of those things. All of that has been in me since day one. And and my mother, bless her, rest her soul and and bless her for all she was. I mean, until the time Alzheimer's started to get a hold of her, she never quit working. She she had her own radio show in St. Louis for a while. She opened her own PR agency. And in the end, she was doing public access TV for senior citizens, writing all the scripts, producing the shows. And she was 70. That's in me. You can never stop learning. Why not? Um, I can't learn new physical things at this age. My knees and shoulders won't handle that after all those years of baseball, but um, writing was in me from the day I was born, uh, and I might as well just keep learning because there's always something to learn. 
Well, it sounds like you're busy promoting your book. You're out there. I know you've been on a number of podcasts, a number of TV and radio programs. What's next for Bob Wilbur? Oh, there'll be another book. I, and I couldn't have said that before this one. This was the kind of make or break book. Like if, if this is successful, then this is kind of what I'm meant to do right now. I don't know what it'll be. I have some ideas. I want to get done promoting this one. We've had a great couple of months here with interviews just like the one I'm on right now with you. That's the stuff you got to do, but I love doing it. I mean, that's why I'm here with you. I, I think this is the fun part. <laughs> it's definitely a lot of fun. It sounds like, Bob, you, that your, your whole life has been one incredible cross-country journey. And I'm just curious, and if someone wanted to, let's say, get into writing or perhaps baseball or perhaps drag racing or perhaps public relations, and you've been in all those, or let's just say that they have a career of their dreams or a job or something that they want to accomplish in their life. I'm just going to put you on the spot and ask you, what would be one piece of advice that you might be able to give them? This is so funny that you asked that question because I was thinking about this last night <laughs> in, a, in a parallel sort of way. You see all these self-help motivational books that are, I think I was listening to the radio and, and it was some, some musician or something saying, if you dream it, you can make it happen. And I'm like, no, if I dream being a rock star, I could never make that happen. If I dream being an astrophysicist, I could not make that happen. But I learned what innate talents I had and which ones motivated me the most and gave me the most joy. And then I dreamed it and made it happen. But that whole blanket statement of if you dream it, you can make it. I was never going to be a center in the NBA. I was not going to be a center in the NFL. <laughs> it's got to be realistic. And, th and so that's my first piece of advice is f find what you're passionate about and quite frankly, what you're pretty good at. You don't have to be great. You just have to be competent because if you love it and you're competent, you'll keep pushing yourself to get better. Does that guarantee success and whatever the pursuit is that you're going to go to the big leagues or you're going to sell a million books? No, not, none of that is guaranteed. But if you're doing it from the right place in your heart, that this is my passion and I want to be the best version of me I can be in this role that I've chosen to put myself on public display then yeah, you got a chance to get better no matter how long you keep going. Sage advice. How far? A tale of determination, DNA, and drama. This is Bob Wilbur's book. Bob, I'm going to give you the most difficult question is, where can people find the book and how can people reach you? Two ways. And one of them is the same. I have a website. It's called bobwilbur.net. Uh, now, I always do this because uh, my name is spelled W-I-L-B-E-R. And whenever I spell my name, I emphasize the E because a lot of people think um, Orville Wright's brother or I was the guy who owned Mr. Ed, the horse. <laughs> so I'm not Wilbur with a U. It's bobwilbur.net. Uh, my bio is on there, my, my background. And also on there are direct links to the sales pages for both books on Amazon. If you go to my website, there's a lot of information there. But right there on the landing page, there's a button to click on that takes you to the two books. And then one more click and you're there. I hope people will check it out and consider it an option for your, uh, for your nightstand for reading. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram. As of late, I'm like one of the last of the Instagram party, but uh, this, <laughs> this old baby boomer is figuring it out anyway. And I'm on Twitter. Definitely the book, Bob. It's definitely a life lessons book told through a sports lens. What the beauty of it is, is that everybody and anybody can relate to it. And it's just a great story. It's so far, so good. I'll have to let you know how it turns out at the end. <laughs> I want to know that. Absolutely. 
We'll definitely put a link in the show notes. And also, please take the opportunity and share this podcast with your friends, family, and everybody else you know. Bob Wilbur, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure for me too. And uh, stay warm up there. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>